I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hello and welcome to the Ian Dale All Talk podcast. I'm Ian Dale. Now, normally I talk to someone from the world of politics or the media, but sometimes I like to do something different, and today is one of those days. I'm going to talk to someone who I've got to know through supporting West Ham. No, it's not Mark Noble, or even, but he's still my beating heart, Declan Rice. Nigel Kahn is an East Ender. He was born a stone's throw from Upton Park, and I first knew of him through his articles in a West Ham fanzine called Overland and Sea, and he now writes for my West Ham blog, West Ham Till I Die. He's also part of the team which presents more than just a podcast. That's M-O-O-R-E. Get it? He's a local historian and tour guide, and I think he has a fascinating life story to tell. And although, of course, we're going to talk about all things West Ham, we're also going to talk about his life, his background, and much more besides. Nigel, welcome. Thanks a lot, Ian. Thanks no, for having me. Not at all. Um, I should say that the little buzzing in the background that people might be able to hear is your neighbour's lawnmower rather than um, any other interference. I thought I'd explain that right from the beginning. Now, how would you describe yourself to the listeners of this podcast? Oh, that's a tough question. Uh, <laughs> I like to go in all guns blazing. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean, other people, if you're going to do it in one word, Marmite, um, <laughs> people... I generally found people either really liked me or took a dislike to me. Perhaps um, I can come across as a bit arrogant at times. Um, I know it all, maybe. And um, I speak my mind, which I'm I'm always honest to people. So if I've disliked people in the time, I've generally come forward and said, you know, yeah, we, you know, pointed out to it. They knew I disliked them. And if I liked people, they knew I liked them. I got on really well. And uh, I'm, I'm quite a loyal person as well to my friends. So you, you, um, you've always struck me as somebody, if you wanted to go into battle, you'd, you'd want someone like you with you in the battle. Yes, uh, that has been said to me. It's also been said is that I like to fight a cause I can't win. <laughs> um, and that is is possibly true of me and I will take it all the way to the end but when I do that I do know there's a good chance I'm not going to win this mm. but for my own um, personal I don't know not gratification but for my own personal mental being I will take it as far as I think I possibly can before I go yeah okay you win 
West Ham has obviously played a really important part in in your life, almost from being a small child. Um, what, what does it mean to you now? Because obviously you've been one of the leaders of the side of the argument that didn't want to move from Upton Park to the London Stadium. Yeah, I detect a slight mellowing in your position on that. Yes. Um, there's a lot of friction between the fan base now and the ownership. And the, the, for me, the best way to describe it is that um, a lot of the fan base feel um, conned and lied to by the owners over the reasons for the move to the Olympic Stadium. And I don't feel conned and lied to by the owners because it sort of panned out the way I said it was. The problem I had was is that I started saying that in 2011 and a lot of people thought I was a dinosaur and a Luddite that was trying to hold the club back. Um, do you understand and, why people thought that? Yes. Y- yes, I do. And, and it's quite funny, really, because I think if West Ham hadn't moved there, and when you bear in mind uh, Tottenham's new stadium, Arsenal in their stadium, Liverpool have increased their stadium, a lot of people would have been complaining that we hadn't gone to Olympic Stadium and that's held the club back, if you get me drift. Mm. So uh, it, it, it was sort of a no-win situation, really. It's possible people, if I'd have been successful, then it's possible people, and we hadn't gone, people would now dislike me even more. <laughs> where actually I've gained a lot of respect and a lot of people, more people like me now than they did back in 2012-13 because what I said came true. Just Which is what? Well, I, I, when, when the owners uh, said they wanted to move the, into the Olympic Stadium and they layered out this you know, world-class team uh, in a world-class stadium, I looked at the details of it quite thoroughly and said, well, it's not going to be a world-class stadium because of the athletics track. And, and even with the, when they were putting in retractable seating, I'd, I studied the plans thoroughly, went to the LLDC and looked at their plans. They wouldn't release us the plans, but me and a friend were allowed to go and study them in their office. So I went with an architect's ruler that I taught myself how to use and measured all the plans and took photographs. And I dis- quickly discovered that the seating doesn't go over the running track, but predominantly only went up to the running track because the gaps were that big. I highlighted the gaps between the upper tier and the lower tier, creating a discourse. And then I said, the extra money does not fund what West Ham thinks it will take to get into the perceived next level. So, and all that has bore fruit. Do you not think, though, that when... uh, I mean, I have never really bought this argument that, oh, well, it's not a football stadium. I mean, what is a football stadium? A football stadium is a stadium that football is played in. And and when when that ground has 60,000 people in it, or over 60,000, and the team is playing well... I think the atmosphere is equal, if not better, than it was at Upton Park. But when we're playing badly, it's a horrible atmosphere. But then it was a horrible atmosphere at Upton Park when we were playing badly uh, as well. I, I've, I, I just... And when you look at the fact that we're now fifth in the league 
and okay, it's what you could say it's maybe a one season wonder, but the owners could legitimately say, well, hang on a minute, okay, it might be take, have taken us a little longer than we wanted, but we have now got a team that's towards the top of the league, and um, each game, although they calculate a bit oddly in the attendance figures, from all of the big games, the stadium sold out. Um, they're expanding the capacity. I think the maximum they can go to is sixty-six thousand. What's not to like? In regards to prior to the move, atmosphere was one thing I never really said could possibly be affected. Obviously, the more people in the ground, you would think the atmosphere is better. In fact, there's a YouTube video of me being interviewed by ITV News outside the ground on the last Upton Park on the last day mm. of the season, where I said about the atmosphere. And the problem is there could be a problem because the atmosphere stems from what the fans are viewing on the pitch so therefore the reason the atmosphere has been bad at the London Stadium is we haven't had a decent team to cheer on there since we moved there but the problem is with the move is that they said we'll give you that team but they haven't given us that team well they have now well people will point out that they have now but that's not down to the move because the move was about extra finances this season's being done while every club is suffering losses and also, I would say that the proof is not in the pudding. It's not this season. It's what happens next season and the season after. Because in uh, Upton oh, no, Park, yeah. West Ham always had the ability to have a season like they're having now. Yeah. And so it, actually... And it never went to the next level, did it? No. We, you know, the one stat I always throw out is... West Ham's been going, depending on who you listen to, 121 or 126 years. Um only once in their history have they ever finished in the top 10 of the top league three years in a row and that was under Harry Redknapp Hmm. so that does not smack of a team that constantly achieved and that's what they said was going to change with that stadium the one thing I used to always put in Overland and Sea was you can't judge it until you've been there for five to ten years. Well, that's true. it's going to take that long. And it is only five years now. Yes. Um, But, I I mean, surely you've got to be more optimistic now than you have been over the past, well, goodness knows how many years, I suppose, because we do genuinely have a team that looks as if it can play together and they've actually met each other before the game rather than some of the West Ham teams in the last few years. You think, well, have they ever played with each other before? Yeah, I mean, th- this season has been a breath of fresh air. The downside is, especially for someone like me, not being able to view it from inside the ground. Uh, and I don't know if, if, it, um, if it makes it a less of achievement or, 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 or an equal achievement to the past seasons that I've witnessed. I mean, if, you, if I think back, and you know I know my stuff about the history... It's probably I could count on one hand in the forty-one or two years I've actually been turned in West Ham that we've actually had seasons like this. So mm. that's why, and people always think, oh, he's putting a downer on it again. Where I say, hold up a minute, next season, that this is when I will go. Do you know what? Actually, they are turning it around, and then if into the third season we're the same then I would say, well, actually, the owners have started to deliver on what they said they would. But with the losses mounting up, and it's got to be paid for, hmm. it's, it's to be seen whether next season 
things will happen. That there's part of me that uh, fears that part of the success this season is because the crowds haven't been there and some of the pressure that inevitably West Ham crowds put on the team hasn't been there and they've been able to relax a bit more. And, and I think if it all does, get, if it all goes to pot next season, you've got the same group of players, but it isn't working. I think that may well be one of the reasons, assuming that crowds are allowed back next season. That's always a contentious issue with fans because no fans like being blamed as being part of the problem. <laughs> Excuse me. But, but, but we are part of the problem, aren't well, we? Well, and, and, and this is the thing. <laughs> In that stadium, we've had bad season. You know, the best we finished was 10th, but we, we only got there, I think, on the last game of the season or the last few games of the yeah. season. So we'd been struggling mainly throughout that season. So we've watched poor football conceded lots of goals defensively um, not very good didn't score that many goals the, the, the style of football was not as perhaps as entertaining as we would like to think we want to watch so therefore the fan pressure was built and built and built I mean I can remember um, a Newcastle game where at half time I'm walking up the stairs or at the start of the second half and thousands of people start pouring down me because Newcastle scored a third goal at, from kickoff for the start of the second half West Ham are 3-0 down they're going home and it, I don't like to criticise fans that do that but for me I will stay and watch the full game because the beauty of West Ham is you never know what's going to happen. People <laughs> say to me, why do you go? And I say, well, it must be boring watching, you know, the likes of Man United, Arsenal, when, you know, when these teams were winning constantly, 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 because you're going to that game and you're, you're going, well, if we don't, if we don't win, I'm going to be upset. Where me, I'm the opposite. I know that, you know, Fulham could beat us, but then we could beat Man United the next week. Mm. So what that says is anything can happen in that game. So I will be there. And there have been quite a few games, actually, in the last few seasons where... Um, wasn't there a game against Tottenham recently where we were 2-0 down and came back to draw a win? I can't remember. Well, we were 3-0 down. 3-0 down. And I, I mean, and, and, th and this is the big shame because imagine... six. I mean, that would have been a 60,000 game, that Tottenham yep. game. Whether there were 60,000 still in the ground on 80 minutes because you know you and me have both been there on 80 minutes when we're 3-0 down and there's probably yeah. been 25,000 in the ground yeah. because everybody else has left and you can see that because the seats are, uh, are often white yes. and they stand out so much don't yeah. they it, the, the, the gaps are, are, are more visible now yeah. than, but you're going to get that in a bigger stadium aren't you as well and do you, do you think the fan base has changed as well going to the Olympic Stadium because um, I suspect there's a lot more football tourists around now and there will be people in uh, London who wouldn't have ever been able to get a season ticket at Upton Park because the, the, the demand was so great and the capacity was so small. Whereas now we've got 52,000 season tickets. I suspect there are probably quite a few Manchester United supporters who think, yeah, I'd quite like to watch Premier League football every week. The season tickets at West Ham aren't as expensive as they are at Manchester United, so I'll get a, I'll get a ticket there. But they're not supporters. No, I, I think there, I think there will be a percentage of fan, but I don't think it's as high as many people like to say it is. I think there's a lot of West Ham fans that possibly, it's a strange thing. West Ham used to have, on average, twenty-one to twenty-three thousand season ticket holders at Upton Park. 
in the last season, that increased to 26,000. And that was a sellout mm. for season ticket holders. We then doubled that going into the Olympic Stadium. But th- so there was a lot of fans that were part-time fans that would pick and choose their game and they think, no, I'm going to go every game now. And what happens is they get over there and they get to see what we've been watching for years. <laughs> and they realise why they were part-time fans and go back to being part-time fans. But because the seats are so cheap, so a lot of these possibly bought the 300 or £285 season tickets it was then. And you think, well, I've, you know, I've, it cost me £15 a game. I don't mind missing a couple of games. I'll yeah. pick and choose what games I go to. I think there's a lot of that. It, it's not just football tourists. The casual West Ham fans. I mean, I'm, we know people from abroad that bought season tickets and they only come to five games a season. Mm. But they want to sit in the same seat. They couldn't do that at Upton Park. But now, um, German fans... French fans, Belgium fans, Norwegian fans, they could buy a season ticket at the London Stadium. West Ham would gladly sell it to them. But while that possibly looks good for them is because they will then get to sit with the same people for their five or six games. And from that, they will make friends. Yeah. Uh, And that's something that... um, I mean, I've had a season. Well, I had a season ticket up to part from I think was it 1991 or 1992, and in the East Stand. And you do make friends with people who sit around. You get to know them, and then when they transferred us all over to the West Stand when they were um, going to do some rebuilding, I mean that you you get to sit with a new group of people, but it's never quite the same. And I think that was certainly the same going to the going to the Olympic Stadium, where you you have to get used to a whole new group of people again and I think that that did take some of the atmosphere out of it yeah I I transferred with I think there was about 11 of us that transferred together so some sat behind me um, some sat alongside me and what happened then is um, it was it was a bit funny the West Ham people knew I was a, I was seen as a bit of a troublemaker um, verbally about the move so then when we go into the sales centre um, I, I asked for and people thought this was a bit strange but I asked for a band four season ticket because that's what I had at Upton Park and I was only allowed to buy a band four but I wanted to sit on the end row where the band three joined and when they asked me, why do you want to do that? I said, because when I look at the person next to me, I know he's going to pay £100 more than the same view. So morally <laughs> in my head, I'm going to just chuckle at him and go, we may be rubbish, mate, but you're paying more than me. What I failed to realise was just 25 seats to my right was going to be band five, which was £230 cheaper than me. And my mates that weren't season to get old Upton Park bought there and was sitting four rows in front of me 25 seats to my right so they were laughing at me because mm. they had the same view to my right as me and were paying half the price so after the first season i've transferred over to them let's go back to your beginnings uh, where, where did you grow up um what what was your education like how did you come to uh be a devoted west ham fan I was born in Plasto, Plasto Maternity Hospital, uh, Howards Road. And 
it was possibly a, people may think uh, I had a tough upbringing. My parents separated before I have any memory of them together. So my first memories of growing up, my mum was a single parent. She was very young. She had my brother at 17, me at 21. She was from the Plasto area. Her family come from market traders in Rathbone Market in Canning Town, and they own shops in the local area. Um, my mum's probably fiercely, in, well, possibly then, was independent, so she wanted to bring the kids up her way. We lived in three rooms in a house. We had the upstairs, three rooms. Um, shared a kitchen, toilet outside, no bathroom. You shared a kitchen with another family? Yeah, downstairs, yeah. See, that that's something that nowadays people... I mean, I think people can relate to having an outside loo, but sharing a kitchen, that was that must have been quite something. But when it's your first memory, yeah. you don't realise yeah, how so. unusual that is. Yeah. So I, I, I remember when we, we moved um, from one part of Canning Town to the other, the, the landlord um, finally moved us into our own flat as such. And I think I was more excited we had our own front door. Still had the outside toilet with no bathroom. I mean, and this is 1975. Yeah, so I mean, it's not, it's not an eon ago, is no. it? No, it, and you know, we we would have a. I think we had a tin bath. We'd have a bath there. My mum would have to boil the kettle. Um, it was still tough then. My mum went to work. She, she worked. We we um, me and my brother were in nursery. My brother goes to school. I go to nursery. I was always, I think, my memories are the first kid dropped off, last kid to be picked up. Um, but through that period, that was a period, if you remember, we lived, um, which was tough, was through the power strikes. Yeah, three-day week. So the power strikes um, was tough because my mum would be at work. Me and my brother would be at home. I think I just started um, what would be infant school. My brother was at junior school. So we were latchkey kids. Mm. I mean, and it's weird to think back when you say that I was six years old, my brother would have been eight, and we would come on our own, home on our own. And we would sit at home, wait for my mum to come back from work for two, two and a half hours. And, you know, in the summer it was great because we got to be out in the street in the winter, especially through the power, you know, you'd, we'd be sitting at home, bang, lights out, everything gone, and me and my brother would have to sit together and wait for my mum to come home. So this is 40, 45 years ago. Yeah. And, yeah, if that happened nowadays, your mother would be reported to social services, wouldn't she? And it just shows how society has changed in its attitudes and the attitudes to children's safety as well. Yes, I, it's hard as a child, you don't see, I don't know how the neighbours thought about my mum. My mum did what she had to do. Oh, I'm not, I'm, don't us. get me wrong, I'm not, I'm not criticising yeah. at all. I'm just saying that the, if that was to happen today, it's just a different time, isn't it? Yes, yeah. I, 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 the, perhaps the best thing to say is we weren't the only kids that lived like that. Yeah, quite. It, it it was not that it was a done thing; it was an accepted thing. 
But I, I think generally in society, I mean, I, I, I had a very different upbringing. I grew up on a uh, farm in Essex and we were left to our own devices all day and every day. And it wouldn't have occurred to my mother to think that we were in any danger. Um, we would just go out at nine o'clock in the morning and she wouldn't see us again maybe until five or six o'clock in the evening. And she wasn't at all worried about our safety. Whereas nowadays, if it was the same situation, I, I just think that wouldn't happen now, would it? It's, it's no. a shame because children don't get that sense of self-reliance and independence that they, they would have done in the in the 60s and 70s. Yeah, yes, I mean, it, it, it's when you look at it like that. I mean, my mum was more than happy to tie a West Ham scarf around my neck when I was eight years old, push me out the front door, and I would meet my uncle outside the gates. Mm. So I've walked from Canning Town up the Barking Road to um, the Bowling area, a good 25-minute walk for a little kid. But I think she did that because she knew that loads of people were doing that walk. So once Mm. I got on the Barking Road, you know, I could still remember saying it now, minor roads come straight home. And I'm sure that's what every parent said. But she knew once I got on the Barking Road, there would be loads of other West Ham fans that would keep an eye on me. And because that's how the East End was back then, people, you know, looked out for each other. And what about school? Um, School. As as a kid growing up, junior school was fine. I was sort of middle of the road. Went to comprehensive school. I don't know about filling with with the wrong crowd, but then I discovered that if you didn't go to school and the school didn't notice, (laughs) you could have a lot of fun. (laughs) (laughs) And um, once you get the taste for that, uh, it's it's a very difficult habit to break. I went to a local comprehensive back in the early 80s. It's a school that, I wouldn't like to say it's totally different now. I'm not sure whether they were bothered whether we were there or not. I was in a class that would be class disruptive. Um, well, the, we whole, had, the whole class? The whole be, class was right. disruptive. I, I, I remember we got put on class report once our English teacher ran out crying. She couldn't take us anymore. And this actually led to what happened to me leaving that school because I got assaulted by a teacher. It was a substitute teacher. And he couldn't control the class. And I got up to get a book when I'd been told not to. And he physically threw me across the room. Um, My mum uh, was informed, went mad. I'd had bruising. And and it was the first time, really, you get to see the power of unions back then. Because when my mum wanted the teacher sacked, I I think she went to a meeting with... um, with the school and the the union was there and and they pointed out like the behaviour of me at the school and the class don't really look good. So the the, the compromise was I didn't have to attend music lessons with that teacher. (laughs) So the teacher just continued no disciplinary action at all? No, not that I, no. And he literally threw me across the classroom into um, a cupboard with handles and it was the handles uh, smashed into my back. And then threw me again across to the desk. I mean, the, 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 I still remember it now. The class was in uproar. Mm. GBH, GBH. And he lost, he just lost total control. But he was a music teacher taking English. 
because our English teacher a week ago had run out and she couldn't control. <laughs> you know, so I can look back now and think, well, actually, perhaps my actions then did contribute to what yeah. happened. But it ended up with my mum um, taking me out of that school. My brother stayed because he was older than me, going on to do a How old were you at the time? Uh, 13. Wow. And then my mum remarried at the same time. And she, um, we moved out of Canning Town to Barking and she put me in another school at Barking. The problem was all my friends were down in Canning Town. So mm. she bought me a bike and I used to ride my bike near three, four times a week back to Canning Town. But it, it wasn't unusual for uh, incidents like that to happen. I, I remember at my school, which, which was a comprehensive, but in Saffron Walden, which, I mean, in Essex terms, is quite a posh bit of Essex. Yeah, I know. Um, and there were like 1,200 of us at this school. Um, and the, the head of maths, Eric Swan was his name, brilliant teacher in many ways, if he liked you. If he didn't like you, he would bully you remorselessly. And he would be, he would virtually in every lesson he would throw a blackboard rubber mm. across the room at some... I mean, literally at somebody's head. And these were pretty he- weighty things. And if if they caught you uh, sort of around the eye, I mean, you were in serious trouble. But was he ever sanctioned for doing that? Of course he wasn't. No, no. I, I, I mean, at junior school, I got slippered. They didn't have the cane, but I got slippered. Yeah, I, I did too. Three or four times. Um, easy. You know, I... You look at my school reports and they say, um, must try harder, talks too much. And it it sort of describes my life. (laughs) Do you regret, though, that... I mean, do you feel the education system failed you? Um, In a way, yes. But I also think I failed to take advantage of the education. I brought my kids up to, to not be like me. Don't don't use me. Don't ever mm. think I'm a role model. Um, my brother went to the same schools, went to university, got a degree. I mean, he, 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 he I don't know, struggled with education. Education in a way came easy to me. I picked things up really quickly. My brother worked hard to get his O-levels. He worked hard to get his A-levels. M- me, I, I, I didn't do that. I didn't put the work in. I've only got myself to blame. The fact that I left school with five CSEs um, uh, and the highest um, English and maths um, were both grade fours and five, which is basically a foul now. But looking back, let's say that things had been very different. You were at a different school. You didn't rebel. You knuckled down. What do you think you would have been capable of? I, I think I possibly could have been capable of what my brother achieved in, in going to university and de- getting a degree. Capable of it. Would I have done it? I don't think I would have done. It wasn't. School life wasn't for me. In some way, I, perhaps my brother was older and I, I see some of the struggles he had mm. with um, with some of the, the kids because he was, a, a, my, my younger sister calls him book smart. So because he was one of those kids that studied and everything, I, I don't. I sort of perceived he had a bit more trouble at school and I made sure that I was Jack the Lad so I never had the same trouble as him. So what did you do when you were playing truant? I, I mean, we used to, we, I used to go football. 
I used to play football sometimes if a couple of mates. So was it, was it a group of you? It wasn't just you so just bunking off. It was. It was a group. different. First time there was a group of us. Then I fell in with a boy, um, and we used to go in and out of shops doing things. And then <laughs> um, you could have a guess what we were doing. Well, um, it might surprise you, Nigel, that I did too. <laughs> yes. Well, yeah, that does remind me. But... The, the, the difference between us may be that I got caught. <laughs> yeah, I never did. In, in fact, we had a nice uh, we had a nice little line going in selling pens, at <laughs> um, believe it or not. So, um, and then, I mean... Once my exam results came in, that was during the teacher strike as well. But I don't want to like to lay blame on that. I put no effort. I did no revision. I did nothing. I used the teacher strike as a way of not going to school. So my mum would go, Are "You at school today?" And I go, "Nah, teachers are on strike again, mum." Mm. And my mum had remarried. She was pregnant with my sister. She she was running her own business by then. She'd set up her own business and was becoming quite successful with it. So she had that on her plate, and I abused that situation. You know, I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not silly, and I, perhaps I manipulated it to my situation. When my mum went into labour with my sister, I used that to go and watch West Ham play Ipswich in the FA Cup. Understandable, you know, um, <laughs> instead of going to school. Uh, and when I got my exam results, my mum said, "You know, you have got to go back to school." You know, you you will not d- achieve anything. So I went back three days later. I'm sitting there, and I'm thinking, what am I doing here, sixth form? And you know, I don't need to be here. Um, but perhaps it highlights one thing that that I do throughout my life is then rather than own up to it, I then hide it. So I stopped mm. going to school, but then I convinced my mum I'm in school. And that went on for six weeks. I went and played um, near enough every day, pitch and putt golf. And I got really good at it on my own. Mm. Um, but one day the school send a letter to your mum and your mum rings up the school and tells them they're idiots. I can tell you what class he's in now. And they're going, he's not been here for six weeks. <laughs> And she called them, I don't know what she called them, but I walked in through the door from school, as she thought. She puts this letter in my hand, look what these people have thought. Up until she saw my face, she thought the school were wrong. Mm. And then she see my face and I'm like, oh, I'm busted here. I'd, luckily, my brother was there to pull her off me. <laughs> <laughs> I can imagine. I think that's the last time my mum ever really <laughs> went for me. Well, but she made me go back to the school to apologise. <laughs> I had to go back and apologise to the head of six year. And um, he said, what do you want to do? I said, I don't know. So my mum marched me up to the careers office. And perhaps this is where the start of my adult life is. She marches me up to the careers office, but she can't come in with me because she's got my sister in a pram. And it was downstairs in Barking Town Hall. And she goes, you go down there and you get a job. You need a job in an office, a bank, something sturdy. And I walk down and tell the bloke, what do you want to do? My mum says, I need a job in a bank. He said, I'm not asking your mum, I'm asking you. And then I said, well, my mate works in a locksmith shop, which he did, and it was opposite West Ham's football ground. Again, West Ham, another thing. And I used to sit in there sometimes waiting for my mate to finish work on a Saturday. 
and I'd watched his job and thought, you know, this looks really interesting. And I said that to Chris, obviously. Some of my mates are like, works in a locksmith shop on a Saturday. It looks really interesting. Oh, we can get you on that. YTS. Youth training scheme. That great. 30 quid a week. And that was the start of my adult life. And, and you've stayed in that kind of line of work ever since, haven't you? Yes. Yeah. I, I, I still I still dabble with locksmiths. I've, I've moved on to um, electronic security, hmm. mainly because of probably to my own way of haphazard life I run it was was that um, I, I was pretty stable up until about 24 and I went self-employed and then other things get in the way when you're self-employed and once you get married and have children you, you need to be more stable and it, it was a bit not chaotic but we went through some uh, tough periods me and my wife and, um, and even when we were perhaps a bit young to go through what we went through and I, I moved into electronic security business because it was more stable. A locksmith, you have to sit by the phone, wait for it to ring. So when I first went self-employed, the phone might not ring for three weeks, but then it would ring for a week constant. Mm. So it was a, 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 you know, it was good living. Don't get me wrong. I've got a thousand and one stories. Some I can share, some I can't. <laughs> um, but in, in the end, once I got to 30, it was, I need to be stable. How did you meet your wife? Oh, she was a local girl plasto. She was at a bus stop with a girl that I knew. And, um, my friend asked me to pull over to talk to the girl that we knew. And um, at my wedding, I described it as, as, as that I pulled over to talk and there was the, the most prettiest girl I'd ever seen in the world. I said, the clouds parted, the sun shone down, birds flew. I said, and I fell in love. I said, and standing next to her, my <laughs> wife. <laughs> I mean, we took the wedding, brought the ass down. But, you know, that's me always trying to make a joke out of it. But, I, I mean, which was true, but the, but the, the first moment I saw Sam, it was, it, apart from the phrase I used to make, who's the blunt heart? And he's like, oh, that's Sam Hardy. I was like, oh, mate. And I met her again on the Tuesday and made sure I got to talk to her. And luckily enough, I was 19 then, but I was living um, in a flat in what I call Docklands. But it was a sublit council flat, possibly on the Isle of Dogs, not the most salubrious bit of Docklands. I lived on the Isle of Dogs, but where I lived, it was a bit of a salubrious bit. <laughs> yes, well, I mean, you know, the, 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 you know, the Docklands are called the bit that faced the river or the water. Yeah. And I lived on the inner bit, yeah. <laughs> down by Island Gardens. Yeah. And I lived in a flat of my own. You know, it was brilliant. Nineteen, living on your own. And I mean, was it effectively love at first sight because I think I think I've heard you say before that she's the only girl that you've ever been out with yes I'd, I, it seems strange I was 19 years of age never had a serious girlfriend but I'd never wanted one um, because of football mm. and work on football I mean just to show but the first job I got as a YTS boy um, I quit that job because they made me work a Saturday and I missed the West Ham versus Orient away in the FA Cup in 1987, January. Perish the and thought. On, and on the Monday, I went in and quit. And as luck would have it, there was an opening 
so you go back to the the YTS scheme runners, and they say you tell them to quit. Obviously, I don't sell them because of West Ham. Mm. You know, I said I can't stand the bloke made up a reason to go. Oh, we, there's a shop here, Plasto Barking Road, locksmith shop. Well, it was made for me. It was a five minute walk from West Ham Football Ground. I could work Saturdays and still make kickoff. <laughs> and I worked for them for two years. But. Again, with my wife, I meet her, and this was the first girl to turn my head. She's a plasto girl. And she was 16. Perhaps I was lucky she was 16. Perhaps an older girl wouldn't have dated me because of my haphazard life. I mean, I remember once telling her, I'll see you Wednesday, and I didn't turn up for a week. And she's like, got the ump with me. You said you'd see me Wednesday. And I'm like, yeah, I didn't say what Wednesday, though, did I? <laughs> You know, cheeky Nigel uh, and, and throughout all this. But we managed to, um, she worked locally in Plasto. Um, we dated for a couple of years. Her family took me in like I was one of their own. And um, we, we, we saved up and bought enough money. I was 21, she was 18. We bought our first house in Plasto. And we, we looked at Barking near where my mum lived. And then we looked at Plasto, but what swung it for me was in Plasto, we could afford a house, not a flat. Mm. And I thought that would be good. But also it was literally a five minute walk from Upton Park. So it was ideal because I could walk to football. And she presumably understood that. Well, you know, she'd, she'd got, got to meet me, um, got to know me. I think we, we, dating me, you know, with, with, as soon as she met me, I think she would have known what West Ham meant to me, you know. Boxing Day, Christmas, will you come and see me? Actually, I'm off out with my best mate. We're going to Ipswich <laughs> to watch West Ham play. Uh, I'll she come said, and see well, you after well, the game. Well, she couldn't compete with Ipswich, could she? I mean, that's Well, it. no, it, it, <laughs> you know, it, 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 the, the thing, throughout my life, there's events that have happened and they're all linked intrinsically to West Ham. Mm. And, I mean, you, you're, you, you have two sheds now in your garden. I think you're sitting in one of them at the moment, which yes. are effectively shrines to West Ham, aren't they? Well, one of them is. So the, the first shed um, we put in, when um, we built it and put all my equipment in it, it was too small. And when we say shed... It's sort of a log cabin. It was mm. three metres by four metres. So then what happened was, is as my son got older, he would sort of, it was said, oh, he would like his own shed like Dad. So we, um, he, he got my shed and I got the bigger one. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, they are shrines to West Ham. I was, Sky once came round my house to do an interview about West Ham and the London Stadium and they were supposed to interview me at the stadium and uh, they said oh we've been told you've got a shed with some West Ham stuff can we have a look and I went yeah and I took them in there and they rung up the film crew and said you better come round here and they filmed me in the shed and they, they took me to the stadium to just film me walking up and down the stairs um that they did all the interview in the shed. So what have you got? All sorts of memorabilia, framed pictures, shirts, that sort of thing? Yeah, I've, I've, as, a, as a kid, um, I started collecting football programmes. So I, I, not, it wasn't much I started collecting. I just 
I'm a hoarder and I mm. didn't know it as a kid. I never threw anything away. We didn't have a lot, so I wouldn't throw it away. And my mum, you know, you got to look after things. So the first thing I started keeping was um, football programmes. A bit of me is upset. I didn't start when I started going West Ham. I'd been going West Ham since I was seven years of age, regular. But I started when I was about nine, ten. But I was also in the local boys' brigade. So, you know, like the Cub Scouts, you'd get a badge for something. And one day I took in my programme collection and everybody was quite amazed. And I had about a couple of hundred then. Mm. And then, you know, so many people, you think, well, I'll just keep going. So now I've got oh, 3,000 West Ham programmes, about 500 other programmes from other games, magazines, 300 books on football, of which probably about 175 of them are West Ham books, uh, including yours, um, which you actually, so. first time we met, you don't even know it. I got you to autograph it for me. Oh, really? West Ham show. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've got, I've got panels that I bought at the auction when they were selling off the bowling ground. I've got pictures out of the bowling ground that were liberated. Um, to save them being thrown away, seats from Upton Park. Yeah, I've I've got a seat, and I've also, um, I know you listen to LBC. Um, Jay yeah. Louise Knight, who's our travel reporter, yeah. um, we we did a sort of Christmas lunch for all my program. Um, what this must have been in, in 2017, I guess, and we did a Secret Santa thing, and you're only allowed to spend, I think, maximum ten pounds, and she gave me a brick that a friend of hers who was working on the demolition of Upton Park had got for her. I don't know why I'm tearing up now. <laughs> but I thought that was such a brilliant present because she knew sort of how much that meant that would mean to me. Um, and people always think, oh, well, why do you collect these things? What's going to happen when you die and all the rest of it? Well, you can, you can only... You, you collect them because they mean something to you at the time. And I've still got that. That has pride of place along with a statue of Margaret Thatcher on my desk. <laughs> I, yeah, I mean, what can you say? I, as a kid growing up, I did politics. Uh, uh, GCE, I fouled it. Uh, but, but Thatcher was... Uh, growing up in West Ham and being a Conservative, you know, that's tough. Mm, still <laughs> you know, is. It still is. But, you know, in, I always remember when they came round knocking on the door, you know, will you be voting in the general election? Yeah, I will. Where will you be voting? i like, oh, Conservative. And this was the Conservative man. And he went, really? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, yeah, mate, you know, there's, there's us and 2,000 others. Yeah. <laughs> that, was, that was it. It was, it, was a, it was a tough old gig. And um, so you married Sam at the age of 21. Um, and you, you, No, she, she was 21. She was 21. I was, I was 25. Right, okay. We'd been together seven years at that time. Um, and you, you've had... A few difficult times, you said. Just, just explain what yeah. you meant by that. I, I mean, when you're together seven years, we'd already bought a house. So naturally, the next step is, and it was a two-bedroom house. So we, we, believe it or not, she was eighteen. But we, it was always, this, well, we don't need to move if we have a family. So mm. it was always, you know, there we were going to have a family yeah. together, even at that young age. So we, we predominantly got married to have a family. I mean, it's amazing when we say to our kids, you know, 
we got engaged in the um, October and were married in the June. There was no real engagement. I'd never bought her a ring. I, I, it's tougher because I, I say things and people, I'm not proud of it now, but back then it made sense to me. We didn't have a lot of money. We're getting married. Why well, get her an engagement ring? I didn't even ask her to marry me. <laughs> and, such, and this is such an old romantic Nigel. No, I've, I've always thought that about you. <laughs> you know, it's it, it's not something I say with pride. It's something I say with embarrassment. But it explains people perhaps the way I was a bit chaotic and why I'm still amazed she was with me because it was basically a um, mum obviously was dropping hints and I was like, well, okay, arrange it then. Let's do it. So from the October to, uh, and we were married in the June um, in, in the church on the Barking Road, the church that was 50 yards from the bus stop that I met her, the church that I went to for 12 years as a kid in the boys' brigade and the church that her mum and dad got married in. Well, that's quite so, romantic, isn't it? No, yeah. It, it, you know, and it was it was... I hadn't seen my dad for 12 years and I invited him and perhaps it broke the ice in the relationship with my dad as well. Um, what, why hadn't you seen him for so long? My mum and dad split up, as I say. I never remember my dad. I, yeah. I, I, um, he may listen to this and I've never even had the conversation with him about... I didn't miss not having a dad. Um, I had my uncle, uh, who was perhaps my father figure. Uh, and, and, and someone I'm still very close to now. Um, and, I, you know, I, I used to say, what you've never had, you don't miss. And it was literally, that was it. I, he used to come and visit when we were kids, but he would come on the Saturday nearest my brother's birthday. But the beauty of that for me was that was cup final day. So I got to watch the cup final. My dad would come round, say hello, whatever, but he would talk to my brother a lot. And I, I weren't interested. So, and you, and you've never had that conversation with him. No, about why, I, I, why, why he didn't play a bigger part in your life. No. Perhaps some things you're better off not knowing. And I had my mum. I didn't, you know, I'm very close to my mum. Mm. I didn't, I, I didn't, I don't feel like I missed out on anything. We went on holiday every year. You know, my mum had no money, but she still saved up, even if it was a caravan in Cromer or Swanage. Nothing wrong with Cromer. No, no, <laughs> great holiday. Swanage was fantastic, you know. Um, we, brilliant holidays we had as kids. Um, my mum always made sure she took us on holiday. She always saved up to take us. So I never really needed that relationship with my dad, but I invited him because his name was on the wedding certificate, even mm. though I did ask for it not to be on there. They said, well, it's got to be on there. And then I thought, my nan was still alive, his mum. And I still, my mum used to take me to visit him every other month or every third month. So I still had that relationship with his family, just not with him. Mm. So I thought it'd be nice for my nan. And I was, I knew... I knew his brother, his younger brother, well, um, Pip, who possibly, like me, he, he's sort of a Cholton athletic version of me. And um, so I thought it'd be nice for my nan to have, like, both her sons there. And and did, um, that, did that break the ice? Not to begin with, no. Not to begin with. It, it, it gave me a nice present, money. 
and I, I didn't cash the check for a month. My mum convinced me to take it because I didn't want it. I, I joked with Sam. I mean, this is what the type of I just sum up is that I say, you know, because Sam had never met my dad. She didn't know him. And I said, mm. well, let's get it right. When he walks into that church, he's going to know who you are because you're going to be in a white dress. I said, but when I step forward with my best man and my, my ushers, he's got four people wearing the same suit to work out what one's his son. Until I stand next to you, he's got a guess. <laughs> and when I come out of the pub um, on the day of the wedding, so I come out of the pub about half two, three o'clock kickoff, as I said, um, on a Saturday, uh, in a year with no World Cup. Or, or European Championships to clash with the wedding. Um, <laughs> well planned. Yeah, oh yeah, to <laughs> planned down to the sea. Um, so I, my dad was at the was at the at the traffic lights at the Abbey Arms on the Barking Road, and as we crossed the road in front of him, um, I've looked and carried on walking, and then stopped and said to my, my best mate, uh, "You never met my dad, have you? You don't know what he looks like." He went, "No." I went, "That's him now." And with that, the lights changed and my dad drove off, but he's now driving the wrong way. And he went, don't you think you should flag him down? I went, nah, figure it out. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, it's, it's, we've got a relationship now. That broke the ice, but it still took me a few years. He owned a pub in a village up in Norfolk. Um, and we used to go to Yarmouth a lot. My, my mother-in-law, uh, bless her, had a, a caravan there. And then my nan tells me my dad's got this pub. And whereabouts? Ah, it was. I wonder if I've been to it. It was the. It was sort of to the to the west of Norwich in a village, about twenty minutes to the west of Norwich. Um, just off is it the A forty seven? Yeah. So just off of there. So it was a lovely pub, you know. But I didn't know. So and we're up there one day, and it's like. Now I've got a daughter. See, now I've got my own kids. And I think that was the change because you, you, when you have your own kids, you think, mm, what, uh, um, why? Why did he not yeah. want to? Did he not? So we went to the pub. And even then, I walk into the pub, and it's a busy pub on a Sunday, and he did Sunday dinners. And I looked about, and I went up to the bar and ordered drinks. And... Because my daughter was with us, she was like two. And it's like, oh, you can't sit in here, you've got to sit in the family room. So we went in the family room, we were the only people. And it was only my wife saying, I said, come and let's go, I, I can't do it. She's like, you've come this far. I said, look, one more drink. And if I don't see him, we're going, because I'm not asking for him. I stepped in the pub, he's the only man behind the bar. <laughs> now, he's looked at me, I've looked at him. Now I've got to order a drink. So I walk up. And my wife says, I do this. I go, proper cockney. <laughs> <laughs> so then I go, what was it? I say, a uh, pint of lager, uh, lemonade, and a Diet Coke. And as he pours a drink, I can see him staring at me. And he just goes, Nigel. And I go, yeah, all right, Dad. <laughs> <laughs> and oh. then that was it. You know, we've kept in contact. We would go walking holidays now with my brother. So I was 42 before I even spent 24 hours non-stop in his company. 
it, this this sounds to me. I, mean, I know it's not, but it's a bit like sort of when, like on that um, long lost family program, where people sort of adopted people um, look for their parents and I know that wasn't the same thing but there's a bit of a hint of that here in that you I mean was, was it Sam that really pushed you to do that to go and find him in that pub or, or was that your decision to not such it was should we go and have a look yeah. it, it was my curiosity but then typically for me uh, um, I can't follow it through there's always something there to stop me mm. um, but luckily when Sam is there she makes sure I follow it through mm. but it, it, it was still difficult my, I, my dad come to see me once at my house he's been to my house once so he comes down to see me and um, he spent time with my son Oliver my son I've got an autistic son and he was only a toddler then and he he was really good with him and um I just thought, you know, everybody would be so proud, so, you know, think, oh, aren't it fantastic? And yet, I thought, you bastard. You mm. never did that with me. Mm. And I was 33, 34 then. So then there was a period where I didn't really talk to him. And it's not really his fault. I don't, you know, and I don't blame him for that. This was me. But then, you know, my brother... And perhaps my brother had more to feel rejected by him than because my brother, you know, is two and a half years older than me, so he probably knew my dad when we were little. Mm. And my brother, you know, got to know him. And then you think, do you know what? And my, they start doing a walking holiday along the southwest coast path, and I thought, oh, I'll have a bit of that. I, I like spending time with my brother. Um, and um, it, it, I, but I, what I did was is. I treated him like a friend rather than a dad and yeah. that really works for me. Yeah. And I like him. Well, that's the start, isn't it? And that's what more can, you know, at the end of the day, I, I think my brother's had it out with him at one point. It's, it's not, you know, I hope he listens to it because I couldn't do it. I couldn't sit in front of him and do this. I couldn't. Why? I just, you know, pride. Um, yeah, pride. Um, perhaps, perhaps the reason I never had a girlfriend until I was nineteen, I was scared of rejection. Mm. Who knows? And you got two kids. Yes, but you had a tragedy as well. Um, yeah, yeah. It's um. Obviously, we got married to have children. Well, not to have children. We got married because we loved each other. We wanted to be married. But but Sam, um, you know, was determined she weren't going to have children until we were married. So, okay, we'll get married. So then she becomes pregnant. And she adds, um, she has a blood disorder called Factor V Leiden, which didn't show itself in her until she was pregnant. And it basically clots her blood um, she was very young she was 21 um, when we got married she was 21 she literally fell pregnant it was probably could have been a honeymoon pregnancy you know um, it was straight away you know we're over the moon delighted um, it, it, so this is the June or July we find out she's pregnant 
uh, in the December, um, you can see she's not she's, uh, she's not really well. She felt, but it could have been the pregnancy. Um, blood pressure was high though, and the, the, it's almost like they knew something was wrong, but they didn't do anything about it. Over the Christmas period, we had midwives coming in and looking up and checking her blood pressure and said, you got to rest, you got to rest, you got to rest. She was six and a half months pregnant by then. So she did all this resting. And then we had an appointment um, in the January on the Thursday. And I can remember this vividly. She probably won't know this, is that they did a urine test so she was in there with a registrar who's checking her over. They do a urine test, the nurse does it. The registrar leaves the room, the nurse does the urine test. And then she does another one. And I thought, well, that's a bit odd, isn't it? But then what she did was she bagged it up and wrote on it. So she left the room, registrar comes in, everything's fine, off you go home. And you think, oh, well, that's good. Friday, she's she's a skin is bloating now, and um, she goes to see the doctor, and she hadn't seen the doctor, her, the GP, and the GP immediately sends her to the hospital on the Friday night. We walk in, you know, I get called, look, I've got to come round, so we go round, and our house backed onto the hospital, so it's local, so we, I go round to the hospital. And, and, and it just like starts to fall apart from now. This doctor walks in and goes, "Be prepared to lose your child." I mean, I could have throttled him. Or just just came out with it like just that. Just came out with it like that. And my, you know, she breaks down. I'm like, no, 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 don't, don't, it's, it's not nothing like that. So then they put her under observation. They put her in a room to, for me to sit next to her. They had to prop up a bed because it was like a storeroom. I got up to shut the window and the window was shut because of the draft. And, you know, again, I don't know what to do. You know, she, uh, luckily her family are there. But then I did, you know, West Ham are playing at home on a Saturday afternoon and I needed time. And, uh, um, you know, then this is where West Ham becomes my escapism. So I go up there. A uh, uh, mum was there, her uh, uh, sisters are there, so I, they don't need me there. And I, 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 I go, but I, I don't go into the game. I just stand outside. I just had to be outside. And at ten past three, I walked back down to the hospital. But I'd been there for a couple of hours outside the ground. We played Southend and beat them two nil. Um. But the hospital, they didn't know, they didn't have a clue. And I always remember that. So she gets transferred to the London hospital. And they um, they see she's got she's got a problem with her liver. And the, 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 the puffiness is liquid sitting under the skin. So they say we've got to try and deliver the baby and put it in a special incubator. They're all good, and they actually start to induce her, but it took uh, it took forever, and and baby's not coming, and then they they stop inducing her because 
I don't know, 13, 14 hours later, they've run out of special... The incubator's gone. So we're not going to do it now. So we'll have to wait. So, right, we wait another day. And all this time, they're, make, they're waking her up to give her fluid because they, they need to flush a system. Flush the system. Drink this, drink this. Waking her up to drink. And... Um, the uh, then the doctor walks in. He's like, "Oh, we can't care for you now. We're going to transfer you again." And my, and my wife is so nice and so polite. She just says, "Oh, okay." And the, and the doctor looked at me and said, "You don't look happy." I said, "Don't look happy." I said, "I've been sleeping on the floor here for two days, three days." I said, uh, "You know, we're being pushed from pillar to post. Now you're saying we've got to go. We're transferring her to another hospital." Long term, it was the best thing that ever happened to her, and it possibly saved her life. We got transferred to UCH Hospital, and um, she, uh, this is the Friday, she, they instantly diagnosed she's got uh, preeclampsia, possibly toxemia. Um, they take blood tests. And we need to deliver the baby. Are you being attacked by seagulls, can I? Yeah, crows. Um, <laughs> So, yeah, um, <laughs> a bit of light relief there. Yeah, quite. Um, and, you know, it, it was hard. I don't know if my wife fully knows what goes on, but I had to sit next to her. And you just see, you know, they're monitoring, they're monitoring, they're monitoring the baby, the baby, the baby. And then on the Saturday, they stop monitoring the baby. 
Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. And do they, do they explain that? No. So they just leave you to draw your own conclusions? Well, I'm not a stupid person. They were monitoring my wife. Um, and then... And, uh, and do, does she understand what's happening? At uh, she's out. Luckily, you know, I don't think she fully understands. The, 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 the weird thing is, is, is you're 20, 25, 26 years of age, and, and the doctor says, explains to me that um, these are the outcomes that can happen. Mm-hmm. We lose one, we lose two. You know, we could save one, what one? And he's looking at me like I've got to choose what one. You know, I've never told my wife that. Um, you know, and it's just mad. And she's born 20 past nine on Saturday night. And she's not alive. And, um, you know, we give her a name. Rachel. Um, and, and the NHS is, you know, the care for at UCH was outstanding, fantastic. But back then, you know, I hope it's not like this now because they put her back on the maternity ward. No. And, you know, and I don't know. I hope I, they didn't think I was a, a problem. But, like, I had to tell the bounty lady to get lost because she wanted to give us a bounty bag. And I said politely, nah, I'm all right, thanks. And she's getting a bit insistent now. You know? And it's... uh, And you're surrounded by people that have just had babies. And and she was in hospital for a month, you know? She was lucky. You know, I was grateful uh, uh, that I had my wife still. And that's what got me through it. Mm. That's what got me through it because, and that's how I, 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 I button it up. And sometimes you think things like this can destroy people. And I, I was, I, I was a lot tougher back then. And it's like it's not destroying me. And you know, I, I did well, my crying that night, and um, I didn't cry again for years. But then it did catch up with me. But it, it can also destroy marriages, can't it? That 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 going yes. through that kind of experience, even though in many ways it it kind of brings you close together, it, it's often very difficult to put it behind you. And I suppose you, I mean, you can't in, you can't put it completely behind you. But it must have been, I mean, you then had two children after that. It must have been a very difficult decision to go ahead with another pregnancy. The, the, the thing with when a woman loses a child that they've carried, that they've felt inside them. Um, you know, the, 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 she, the, the thing was, we go again. So Molly was born 13 months near enough to the day in the same hospital to, to when we lost Rachel. Mm. Uh, and, you know, it's, it's weird when you look at it and you think, we got married in June 95 and Molly was born February 97 and 
in that 17, 18 month period, Sam was pregnant for virtually 13, 12 months of it. But the care from UCH then, see, this is the thing. Now we're at a specialist hospital. They identify Sam's got this blood disorder. Mm. So what it means is that um, even though I had to argue, and we, we, we knew them to, to healthcare, that actually when we um, have our next child, we want to be treated by UCH. And in the end, they relented. So we went to UCH for our maternity care. Um, and the, the care there was outstanding but she, she had to inject herself every day with warfarin and she was going to work <laughs> she's 22 now you know uh, but then Molly turns up and um, it, it's, it, oh, I couldn't watch uh, it's funny uh, you know it's I, we laugh and joke men you know I no picnic having a baby is it you know we don't go through it I had to be in the room and hold around but I faced the wall and when Molly was born the first thing I said was is she alive and in the, the midwives must have thought what a stupid thing to say um, you know and, and again when Oliver was born I had to face the wall I couldn't when pushing started mm. um, no that's not for me I was glad we stopped at two I couldn't <laughs> I, it's, it's fine and that's the thing you know I say I couldn't have gone through that again but the place where I always went to wide was West Ham football became an escapism and I could go into that ground and for two hours all I thought about was football and that was my coping mechanism mm. and perhaps this explains a bit why I'm still as intense at football uh, I'm quite relaxed at a football game you've been with me I'm very relaxed watching a game um, but you know there have been various times in my life where to run away from my life I've gone football and, and, and what, perhaps you, football doesn't understand the power of the as there. If you hadn't had the football, what what would have been your escape if football hadn't existed? Well, it wouldn't have been work. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the reason I went to work was to pay to go football originally. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. That's a good question. Oh, I did, because I've only ever had football I, I mean I like all sports cricket I used to go and watch Essex play but I was nothing you know West Ham to me uh, I think I've said before it sort of defines who I am uh, it's, I, I'm an extension of it did you, did, you, did you play? yeah I, t I, I, I wanted to be a goalkeeper as a kid um, but I was the fat kid so we were always the ones that got put in goal. But I got good enough to play for the school team. But I, was, I wasn't I was the tallest. And I, I, I mean, I say that like it meant, well, if I'd have been six foot one, I would have been a goalkeeper. I weren't that good either. <laughs> <laughs> you, know, you know, I could sit there all night and go, yeah, if only I'd been taller. Well, actually, if only I'd been taller and I could stop the ball. 
<laughs> I mean, is there any sport that you're good at? You're, you're, you're okay golfer, aren't you? I mean, we played we played once. Yeah, I'd, you know, I'd, 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 I was pretty good at cricket um, until I got knocked out by a cricket ball. I was playing with adults. Yeah, that does it, doesn't it? I, and I, I was always a bit afraid of that cricket ball. It did as a batsman. But the problem was I was the wicketkeeper. Well, I was a goalkeeper. <laughs> I was the wicketkeeper. And I was playing with adults. And it was quite funny. It was it was at the boys' brigade. And um, the, the, the boy that bowled it was oh, he was an adult. He was like 19. And it got edged. And I was standing too close. So it edged into my eye. Oof. And I was out for five minutes cold. Wow. And when they brought me around, apparently the first thing I said was, is it my turn to bat now? <laughs> and now my eyes closing. And um, they're saying, Nigel, you better go home. My brother was there as well. <laughs> and they said, Nigel, you better go home. And I said, I ain't going home until I've had a bat. So they actually let me have a bat before I go home. And I said to my brother, you wait here, I'll go. I was 13, it's 12 or 13, so I walked home. I walked in, there was a mirror above the upstairs, go upstairs in the living room, a big mirror. And I didn't say anything to my mum, I just looked in the mirror, I went, that's worse than I thought. My <laughs> eye had shut, but part of the cricket ball was still on my cheek. <laughs> and my mum went mad. Um, and she rushed me up the hospital and they said if it had been an inch more towards my eye, I'd have lost the eye. Yeah. But the funny thing about it is at church on Sunday, uh, the vicar, uh, we was we, we were practicing for the um, church against the boys brigade cricket team, and he asked for volunteers to play cricket for the for the church, and asked me to stand up, and he said, and just in case you're worried about um, about it, like getting hurt, this is what they do to their own players. <laughs> <laughs> I had a shine. Of course, you go back to school and the story is I got beat up by the wimpiest kid in the school. <laughs> you know, it's like, oh, you got that. It's like, well, no, I got done playing cricket. Uh, you know, at school's like, it's quite funny. But, um, but yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love all sport, but, you know, football is the... And does, I mean, we talked a little bit earlier about sort of Sam and when you first met and yeah. West Ham. I mean... What we on thirty years on now? Um, yeah. Does it frustrate her a bit that you're still as obsessed by West Ham? I think I think she's still waiting for me to grow out of it. <laughs> She'll have a long wait. Yeah, it's. I, I don't know. I'd, it's, it, perhaps it would be interesting to hear her side of it. <laughs> yeah, maybe you I'll know, interview uh, her next. <laughs> you know, the, the the thing is, is is that. Um, I think it's not so much a pride, you know. Uh, was I there for my kids when they were little? You know, the first, Molly's first Boxing Day. You know, we beat Coventry one 0 Ian. So you, you have an encyclopedic memory for these things. When I listen to you on the podcast sometimes, I think, how does he remember these games? Which m many of the games you mention, I was at, yeah. but I couldn't tell you who scored first or who got booked in the forty-six minute or something. You yeah. can. Yeah, I don't. We've we've. <laughs> do you know? I don't remember what she asked me to do earlier today, <laughs> but I can sit down and and it it's just things come into my head, and perhaps throughout life I've I relate events to football games. Mm. So. Um, that's, uh, I, d I don't know. You know, I wish I had an answer because then I'd know where I put things. 
but and, and perhaps I may have been a better husband. Um, let's talk about autism because you said earlier on that your your son's autistic, and and yeah. y- you and your wife have raised a lot of money for local autistic My charities. Wife. Yeah, all right, she has. I was being kind to you, um, yeah. and. I mean, I remember coming to a golf tournament that you organised. Um, where, yes. where was that? Was that in, just off the M25, wasn't it? Yeah, it was at Bellas Woods. Yeah. yeah. Um, and and I thought, well, bloody good on you for doing this because it, it's clearly a cause very close to your heart. Um, and it's a subject that whenever I talk about it on my radio show, we get the most amazing calls from people because I think they, those those of us who've never sort of experienced a child with autism don't really understand it. And um, and I'm always really keen to do phone-ins on that sort of thing because it enables people to phone in to actually educate the rest of us. And I mean, what's your what's your experience been? I was at football, Ian. Um, it, 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 <coughs> my son's a fantastic boy, and what he's achieved. He's at college now, um, and and the best way to uh, I don't know. It's hard for me. I haven't really. I didn't understand it, Ian. You know, my wife picked up on it really early. So he, he goes to nursery, and he didn't talk a lot when we were kid when he was little, and he, he didn't develop perhaps that way. But again, perhaps more wrapped up in what I did. It was like oh. He'll, you know, he'll be all right, he'll be all right. But my wife was, she picked up on it really early. But then what drove it home was he was in nursery and it was like the parents can come in and have a look day. And she could see he paid no attention. He was about three, four. Mm. That it, it, it just something was different. And she knew, she, she'd known for ages. But then it spurred her on to try and, and, and get him the extra help that he needed. And boy... Did she fight? And boy, did the school at first put up a fight? I mean, all we're asking is for our boy to have a fair crack at education. And that used to do a thing called a statement. So my my wife would research everything. Um, And then I remember going into a meeting with her, purely possibly for moral support. You know, my brief was sit there, don't say anything in case I said the wrong thing, because I'd, I'd not paid no attention, but, I'd, you know, I, I, I went out to work, and I, oh, rightly or wrongly, thought, well, I'll go to work, so I want one day for myself, and I'll go football for that day. It's something I've done since a kid, and I'm not giving it up. And so I used to sit by my, my wife's side, and, you know, the school would, like, putting up reasons... Why not to get Oliver a statement? And then in the end, my, my wife had uh, got him to go, oh, OK, then we'll do it. That's exactly what the, the teacher said. Let's do it then. And when they applied for it, he, he, he got the maximum amount of hours of support. So obviously, when the professionals gave their diagnosis mm. to the school... It was obvious, but the school put up so many blocks and my wife fought and fought and fought. And the thing about Sam is, she, you know, she don't want other people to go through. So 
there was not a lot of help locally, support for other parents. So, so she formed her own. And it's still going today. The, mm. the, the, the Furrock branch of the National Autistic Society. Um, the work they do, they're all volunteers, is, is, um, is purely all for the kids. I mean, even at this moment in time, so it's a, it's a support group which survives on being able to get together, but, but they can't now. So my wife and the other volunteers, they organise get-togethers on Zoom. But not only that, is they do stuff for the kids. So recently they've had... Sorry, we, 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 we should just explain that we're recording this while the COVID crisis. Yes, if, you, well, if you're listening to this in 2027, yeah. uh, <laughs> the, the COVID crisis is still ongoing. That's why they can't get together. Yes, and West Ham still not won the league. And it's still going. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, we live in hope. Um, but during this crisis, so they go out and they go get a petting zoo and the petting zoo goes on to Zoom and shows the kids the animals and allows the kids to ask questions. Mm. You know, she's still doing things for the kids. Um, and, it, and this is the thing that COVID has done a lot of things. And, the, you know, they used to run game workshops, Lego builds, everything. I mean, I think her branch became runner-up out of 148 branches of like the National Autistic Society for a branch of the year last year. And she's won awards locally. I mean, it was, we joked once we went to an evening, uh, a function, and um, they put her at the back. And I went, aye, aye, loser's table. They put you at the back, keep you out of the way. And she was the first award to be announced, and she won. <laughs> <laughs> Um, I'll never forget that because that was the day they opened the Billy Bond stand. <laughs> but I wasn't there. Can I just point out, I was actually at the function. So that was one game I did miss. <laughs> oh, I had to say that. You've got to get the football, uh, the football bit in. You know? Brilliant. And, and is your son as obsessed by West Ham as you? No, no. And, and this is... You know, well, perhaps that's a, that's a great failing of fatherhood there, I think. Well, I took him <laughs> twice. Um, I think it really, you know, you, you like to leave a legacy to the club. So that's what I thought anyway. Mm. So uh, I start taking my daughter. I forced her to go um, after eight years of forcing her. <laughs> uh, I gave up. <laughs> I took my son twice. And perhaps this was early, where, where then I start to notice. Is it was about five. We were playing a game, and it's his first game. I think right, he's five. So um, I took him in with my daughter. We sit down in our seats. At half time, my nephew who sat next to me got up to go and get a hot dog, and my son wants to go home. So go home now, go home now. I'm like, no, 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 second half, boy. And no, no, go. Bill gone. And I'm like, no, Bill's coming back. And he, he just wouldn't let go. He wanted to go, he wanted to go, he wanted to go. So I had to get up and go. So there was a sign for me that, that I didn't pick up on. Yeah. But I want him to get to love West Ham. So I buy a set of cards and I go, that's, look, that's West Ham, that's West Ham, that's West Ham, West Ham. What's that team? Wolves. Like Wolverine. 
Yeah. Oh, I like wolves. And yeah, well, so, you're, you're trying to tell me that your son's now a wolves supporter. Well, no. <laughs> uh, this is again when he's little. But what it is, so I, I was so happy like football. Yeah, but that can do it, can't it? I mean, people no. support football teams for like really strange reasons. Yeah. So I went to Wolverhampton and bought him an hat and scarf and Wolverhampton Football Club were brilliant. They really were. And I thought, let him be a Wolves fan because as long as it's not Tottenham yeah. on Millwall, I don't care. <laughs> you know, you know, but it, perhaps he, he then grows up. I don't know. It, it, perhaps he grows up and all he sees is dad pays more attention to football than me. And he don't like football. You know, if you ask him what football team he supports, and this was a teacher at school that he likes for, he'll tell you Tottenham. So he changed from Wolves to Tottenham, but he but he did it as well because I'd already said you can be anything, not Tottenham or Millwall. So then the the the, 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 the funny side of him, the Nigel in him, says, "Oh, I'll beat Tottenham then." I and mean, you, my neighbour bought him a Tottenham shirt. And you didn't throw him out of the house immediately? Well, no, what I did was I picked up the shirt, walked across the road, knocked on my neighbour's door. I said, what? And I gave him the shirt back and I said, if you don't want your kid, your grandkids running around in West Ham kits, you take that back. I've allowed him to have a scarf, but he don't like, But it's good for me because I can go, we well, don't like football. He don't, you know, he, mm. the, the Tottenham bit is, is just something to wind me up. <laughs> But, you know, I, I wouldn't change him for the world, and quite rightly so. How old is he now? 18. And he's at college? He's at college, he's finishing college, yeah. He enjoys it? It's been tough for him with lockdown. You know, autistic kids, you learn, um, on, on kids on the spectrum, they like routine. Yeah. And I'd, I'd imagine that a lot of kids have struggled um, with this lockdown. You see, this is the hidden side of it, isn't it? The, the, the things that people don't see. And, I mean, I've lost count. The, the number of times people say to me, oh, how have you found lockdown? And I feel really guilty because it, it hasn't affected me, I don't think, in any negative way. But then you hear all different stories from people of different backgrounds or different circumstances, and we just don't see the half of it. I mean, if I'm being honest, um, when we entered lockdown, not a problem dragged on now um it, it, I, I, I you know I, I, possibly because i haven't had that escapism to go to um i mean i've struggled i mean the other week i didn't do the podcast i didn't write for you um because i just couldn't face it it was just like i i don't know i don't know it's funny because when you said that, oh, sometimes I just need a break from West Ham, I did think to myself, mm, I'm not sure that's a whole story. No. I, I, possibly. My business, obviously, I'm a self employed tradesman and um, it hasn't gone well for me at all. Mm. It, I, you know, it's not wiped me out, but it's near enough wiped me out. And it's a struggle. And can can you, can you see the light at the end of the tunnel now, though? This this week, um, Sam showed me the light. Something she said to me this week, and now, if I pull it off, I can see the light. But 
for me to not when I only did it for a week no podcast no writing no West Ham but when I said it it could have been forever mm-hmm. but I was back but then I, I doing doing the podcast is strange because you don't hear, you know, you do radio, you know, I don't know. In, in a way, it is like radio, but I, I joined this podcast. It had been going four or five years. I got to know the people really well. Um, Sean, who I bounce off of, is the total opposite to me. We've got a total different, total different view of football. And we became friends because he was the chief cheerleader of the move to the stadium. And I was part of the left wing, as I call it, that used to stand on the side and and, and tell, no, this is going to kill the club. And we were at the same supporters' meetings where he would be, you know, he stole in the move. And, and they put him in charge of building the report the fans, you know, they wanted the mm. fans. They wanted the fans to tell. What would you think? And Sean was put in charge of collating it, and it, to the point where he, he then emails me because I go out then to the fan base. I was protesting outside the ground with a flag. I had a flag made. The club didn't know what to do with me. One, they didn't know who I was, because up until that moment, all I did was went football. I didn't socialise. I didn't. I didn't even do the internet until 2011. I, the internet came to me because I wanted to stop the move. The, 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 the podcast, they talk about me without knowing me and I make contact with them. And then you meet Sean and, you know, I, my job is to show why Sean is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and out of that grew a friendship because at the end of the day... And it feeds into like what I, the way I see politics now, because at the end of the day, so, a lot of some of my friends that were anti the move couldn't understand how I became friends with Sean. Because mm. you know what people, a lot of people think of Sean in the fan base. He's not well liked. Uh, but how can I do it? And I say because, uh, and this is what I say about myself as well. Because to know him is to like him. And that's the thing. And you're right. There, there is a similarity with politics here where you've got... Do you remember a few years ago that Labour MP Laura Pidcock said she could never be friends with a Tory? And yes. I thought, well, you've got a lot to learn, lady. If you want to yeah. get things done in the House of Commons, you've got, to, you've got to form alliances. You've got to understand where the other person's coming from for a start. And it is a bit the same in this kind of situation, isn't it? Yeah. I, it, it, I, I've never understood that. And I've perhaps... I've I've never been a Labour person, and the, the, the reason I'd, it's strange. I went to a meeting with Tom Watson. Guess where that meeting was, Ian? I dread to think. It was at Upton Park. Was it really? So, <laughs> a friend of mine worked. I think he did PR for the Labour Party. So he was part of Tom Watson's campaign to be deputy leader of the Labour Party. Mm. And this story, for me, summed Labour up. So he organises it at Upton Park for the East London Labour people. He, for whatever reason, I, I don't know if he regrets it, but he wants people to fill the seats up and says, do you want to sit at the back? So I go, yeah, all right, I'll bring my father-in-law. So I bring my father-in-law. 
and we'll sit at the back. And on every seat is a leaflet for Tom Watson and his campaign, and it's just full of Labour Party members. And it was an eye-opener, because it's like, hello, brother, uh, up, Upminster and Long Church uh, Committee, we fully endorse you, brother, in the... You know, and you, I thought it was funny. But I read this leaflet, and there were some great points. I actually liked Tom Watson after this. But there was one thing that was on there, and it says, this is after the 2015 election, before the referendum. Labour lost one million votes to UKIP in the 2015 election. And in this leaflet, Tom Watson's plan to win them back was to campaign to remain in the European Union. Now, this blew my mind, and I had to ask him a question. I couldn't leave it. I wasn't a member of the Labour Party. Mm. But as someone that was a UKIP, had now gone to UKIP from the Tories, purely because I was a Eurosceptic and I thought they delivered, the more people voted UKIP, we would get out of Brexit. I was, I've been anti-EU since John Major signed the Maastricht Treaty because it took us from being an economic pact to a political pact. And I've always believed that each country should progress politically on its own terms. The people in that country should have to be able, the ability, not people in Brussels. Rightly or wrongly, I'm not, you know, ingrained in politics, but I do follow it well enough to think that was my belief. So I was always going to vote for Brexit. But here was a man in the Labour Party who identified that the Labour Party was shedding votes to a one-trick pony. UKIP only got my vote up until we left the EU. I wouldn't touch him with a barge pole. I wouldn't touch Nigel Farage with a barge pole. He was a means to an end for me. Um, So he's identified it. But the reason to win them back went flied in the face of why the people had voted for UKIP. And it perhaps shows why Labour were where they were under Jeremy Corbyn and everything else, because it's almost like they saw the problem but failed to understand, and they failed to understand the working-class problem. Without getting too political, for me, free movement of Labour decimated the trades of this country. because it. it and I don't blame... Uh, the European people for coming here. I made a lot of friends, and they are fan. They were fantastic people, fantastic workers. But if businesses, the people at the top, have got an untapped supply of cheap labour, then they will never train the youth, mm. and it will only help to keep wages down for the for the trades that were affected. And as a tradesman, um, that was something. That, that, that was my be-all and end-all. If, if David Cameron had gone and got the changes to the free movement of Labour, and this is what, for me, remain, uh, Remainers missed the point, is that in the 2015 election, David Cameron won that off the back of promising. So more people voted for him because he said, I'll give you a referendum. Then when we had the referendum, more people voted for that. It wasn't just a one win. There was two wins there. 
and that's why I always thought that we would vote out because David Cameron won the 2015 election off the back of giving people a referendum off his renegotiation. The fact he couldn't renegotiate with the EU meant people would never, which for me meant people, the rest of the people, we're never going to go for it. Yeah, and that that was the moment that I decided to vote leave because I, I was, although I'd always, I would have always described myself as a Eurosceptic. I was never sort of anti the whole thing in the way that I suspect that you were from the days of John Major. Yeah. Um, but that was the moment that that I saw the light, if you want to put it like that, because I thought these people are never going to change, and if they all they want is more Europe, they want a political union. And like you, I think that individual countries are better off deciding their own destiny, as we see with all the vaccine rollout at the moment. Yeah. Um, but uh, as Sean would say, this is not a political podcast today. No. <laughs> I thought I'd throw it in. For yeah, no, 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 no. I, I, I'm, 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 glad, I'm glad you did. Um, well, I suppose we ought to wrap up on it, because you are already now the longest all-talk podcast that I've ever done, which I kind of thought that would happen. That's an honour for me. It's a great... Uh, well, it's an honour for me. Um, but in, in terms of um, where... I mean, go back to West, West Ham for a minute. Um, I mean, we covered all of the, the, the move and everything. You, you've been a very vocal advocate of uh, the owners departing and Karen Brady also sort of um brady out must be the the most common thing said on the on your podcast um something i started well you you did indeed but do do you sort of i mean given what you've said about the need to sort of see the other's point of view and get along do do you regret that it's become that personalized there's two parts to me here um and and I feel detached from a West Ham fan base now that are anti-Golden Sullivan and I feel a lot of them make me look pro-Golden Sullivan and Brady. Yeah. The, the reason why I remain solidly behind Brady out is because um, I, I, perhaps I was emotionally attached to the area but that's where I was born, that's where I was brought up. I couldn't help that fact, you know. So that ground was part of my life up until 2015, 16. And in fact, I was, you know, I, I was in a shop last night across the road to it getting something to eat. So I'm still ingrained into the area, um, even though I don't live there. So when it comes to the owners now, if if you look at a lot of the fan base, it's, you know, protest, protest, get them out, get them out. But that's the vocal fan base. And... A lot of that negativity comes from the fact that the results didn't match on the pitch. So while a lot of them say, oh, it's got nothing to do with results, I think it, a lot of them, it did. And also, I look at a lot of the reasons put forward now by some of the protest groups. And, you know, I am an argumentative person, I'll admit that. And sometimes I will go on there and I'll call them out over it. But a lot of it is this... You know, I got called a lot of terrible things when I was protesting. Um, worst of all, I got called a Spurs fan. David Gold said, why don't I go and support Doncaster Rovers? <laughs> um, but now, what they're complaining now, I just wish they'd have been like that when they could have done something about it. Because if the thousands had marched before the move, it may mm. have been different. But they didn't. It's too late now. Uh, I, I'm, I'm, 
you know, your website, I've made more friends off of West Ham till I died than any other West Ham website. And one of the blokes come up to me because what I said was, is that West Ham will die for me in 2015, 16. I said, but in Stratford, they're starting a new football club and I need football and I will support that club. And that is how I put it in a box and boxed it up. It's really interesting because um, having listened to you on that on the podcast for what, well, however long it's been since you've been on it, um, I I have sort of detected over the past year a, a slight softening of your position. Not that you're becoming sort of pro board or anything like that at all, but I think you you have instead of just somebody who is a, a die-hard fan, you've kind of taken on the role as a bit of a slightly detached observer and I think you you have been able to see the wood for the trees it may be in a way so it sounds incredibly patronising but maybe in a way that you didn't before I don't know whether there's yeah, anything in I, that look one of the a big argument is they've not not, not invested in the club the, the, the truth is they have invested yeah. in the club just badly yes <laughs> I've done shows and videos where I've tried to say to people actually if you look at the accounts they have invested money into the club. They just did it badly. They backed the wrong people at the wrong time and they didn't do their due balance and checks. The one thing they always fail to do is accept the blame. It's always somebody else's fault and, and, and they use their people to, to perpetuate that. It's Pellegrini's fault. You know, oh, why did we appoint Pellegrini? Oh, the fans wanted a top-class manager, so we gave the fans what they wanted. But it's, that's their job to actually make sure that you do what's right for the club. We're, we're supporters, but we don't know the ins and outs of a football club. The reason why I step back as an observer, as I say, is a lot of what the people are complaining about, they're wrong. Mm. They have invested in the club. They haven't stolen money from the club. They've put as much money into the club. Yes, they took money out on interest payments, but guess what? They've put double back in. What I try to do is say to people, want them out for the right reasons. And the right reasons are is what the way they moved us and the stories they told, and this is for me, they made me look like a Luddite. They made me look like a dinosaur. They did their best to make me look like an idiot. The fool on the hill, as the Beatles said. But if you listen to the Beatles song, that the fool on the hill thought, actually, those the fools, you lot, not me. Well, it's going to be very interesting to see what happens over the next few years because it's entirely possible that it will all come crashing down uh, next season. But, I mean, let's hope that uh, we, we can beat that. Uh, what was it? What did you say? Three years in a row in the top ten the top last time as Harry Redknapp. Well, we'll see if we can get I mean, there. the last... The, the, the big thing I said when you was in the fanzine, and I'm glad I'd never do you read it. So oh, no, go. I did. I was religiously... <laughs> so, the one thing I, I said... I wrote for time, it a few times that resonated with a few people come up to me was that you know, I said this to David Gold that if West Ham go to the Olympic Stadium and remain as West Ham you're in trouble and what I meant was is that we were happy to be the biggest team in Europe that had never won the league title in its own country we were happy to be the team that's 
history is far better than its present day encompassment. We were happy to take the defeats against Huddersfield to go with the victories against Arsenal and Man United while we were at Upton Park. But you showed ambition, and if you can't deliver that ambition, you're in trouble. And what happened? They couldn't deliver on the ambition of what they promised. Well, and this is the thing, did they promise it? No, they never. They never said, we promise. It was statements of ambition. Hmm. But it was what I said at the time was, they cannot deliver on those statements of ambition. And I'll still maintain it. Well, time will tell. Um, Let's finish off with a few just little quick-fire questions, which I haven't prepared, but are just going to come off the top of my head. Um, Who do you think is... Who's your favourite player at the moment, the player that you you really love watching? Um, Oh, that's a good question. Uh, Thomas Suchek. Hmm. No, I agree. I think I think he's been phenomenal. He's, it's, he's the, it's amazing to me. Uh, how is he? Twenty twenty six or twenty eight? It's amazing to me that nobody had grabbed him before we got him. Yeah, I think he's twenty six. I think I think um, Sue Fowl, Koo Fowl, whatever I call him. <laughs> um, I think uh, Sue Fowl is twenty eight. Another fantastic signing. Mm. But Sue Check, the one, he's sort of the catalysts. In more than Bowen, they both turned up together. But he, for me, is the one that um, has changed the way that we play, or has enabled us to change the way that we play. And who's the best player that you've seen play for West Ham live? Um, Paolo Di Canio. Without a doubt, I don't even have to think. That man could do things with a football. Same, Same as me. I would give the same answer. Frustrated the life out of me at times with his diving antics and falling over. But um, some of the, not even the goals, some of the passes he done, hmm. some of the skill with the ball, he did a backward scoop once down the line. Um, uh, you know, unbelievable. Some, you know, perhaps four and a half of the best years of watching West Ham yeah. in the 43 that I've seen. Totally agree. One of the things I've been doing recently, because I'm launching a new version of the website, which I know you know because you've yeah. um, looked at it. Um, and one of the things that I've been doing is adding a player archive on it where you sort of put all of their appearances, goals, previous clubs, yeah. and all that sort of stuff. And I've so far, I've got back to the year 2000. And one of the things that's really struck me on this is the number of players who have joined West Ham having played brilliantly for previous clubs and when they leave West Ham they play brilliantly for the clubs that they join something goes wrong when they come to us and there are so many players that you could cite that have had that experience um, often strikers who have scored freely elsewhere but just don't do it for us and I still can't quite work out why that is there's something that happens when they come into West Ham they either don't get the chances that they should get or there's just something that doesn't work and I don't know what that is the first season I started watching West Ham, we signed John Radford, Arsenal goal scoring legend. He spent a season at West Ham, didn't score one goal. Mm. I think he went to Blackburn and scored on his debut. <laughs> but it, I mean, look at Sebastian Haller, although I, yeah. ga- I gather his period now at Ajax isn't what it might be, but he, he, he scored freely in his first few games, didn't he? Yeah, I mean, as you say, West Ham is littered with them, you know. Um, 
where we get these players, and perhaps it's, it's the, the way we play, the, the type of football. Have, have we done the research really mm. uh, into the player? Can he fit in with the system, with the way that the players are there, want to play? You know, um, blimey, if I knew the answer, <laughs> Ian, I'd be the manager, wouldn't I? <laughs> to be honest. What about a player that you've seen that maybe has come up through the youth team and you've thought, this is somebody that we need to really devote some time and effort with? And then they've played a few games, had a few chances, but maybe didn't sort of rip up any trees. And then they've been sold. You think, oh, if only only they'd been given a chance. Um, that's, that's tough. I mean, we've had a lot of kids come through. The, um, I've, you know me, I've always believed in, in the youth system that we should be doing more for it. Um, I, I, Freddie Sears blew hot on cold, but I always felt we should have persevered with him a bit better. But perhaps it, it's telling that um, if you look at their careers after West Ham, mm. not many of the youth players we've re- we've released actually went on and had better careers um, we had uh, Ray Outen he's probably the most famous one um, and and there's not many uh, Matt Holland I don't know if you if, yep. if you know Matt yep. Holland came yeah, through the youth team Absolutely. at West Ham never got a sniff you know but did but- he become outstanding I mean he was a great player for Cholton and Ipswich don't get me wrong See, Josh Cullen is one where I, I really thought that he would have a chance. And apparently he is cons- consistently Anderlecht's player of the match um, at the moment. Where, and, and, and he's gone. I mean, he was not on loan. He, he was actually sold. And I thought that was a great shame. But the one that I, I, I would identify would be Matthew Rush. Do you remember him? Yes. I, I thought what an outstanding player he was. But whether he didn't have the commitment or not, I, I don't know. But... Uh, I thought he he had he had the the physique for it, he had the skill, he scored some fantastic long range goals, and yet probably played I think less than ten matches for us. You might be surprised to find he played more than that. I'm going to look actually. now, um, but I, I'm Matthew Rush. He, he did score some wonderful goals. It, he came into the club at a time of turmoil, which sometimes you think could be the best time for a young player because young players get picked. Um, when they're young, generally they're either outstanding like Declan Rice and Tony Cotty or the people there ain't doing it and all we've got is youth to turn to, so we throw them in. So um, there was a boy that um, I knew that showed flashes of brilliance, Danny Williamson, yeah, and he came to my wedding. Did he? Uh, yes, because the, the girl who I stopped to talk to when I first met my wife was his girlfriend <laughs> um, so I got to know Danny really well but our perhaps um, joint uh, thing was golf we really bonded over golf mm. and Danny was a fantastic player and it was a great insight for me actually because I got to see it I'd got to know Danny when he was 18 and then he broke into the team and as we and we were playing golf, and you could see the way people would then start to recognise him. You know, you'd be he'd be just about to take a shot, and a bloke would shout out, "Oi, oi, Danny! Great game Saturday!" 
you know, and I'd look over and think, mate, let him take his shot, will you? He's playing golf. <laughs> but he was great, you know, and I think he, he understood that was par for the course. But, you know, he went to Everton, got injured and was never seen again. I see what you did there, par for the course. Yeah, did you like it? Very good. Yeah, very good. <laughs> he should be on the stage. Yeah, with a noose around his neck, a lot of people say. <laughs> <laughs> the wife with the trapdoor handle. <laughs> but he, he was a player. He Didn't he? He got quite a bad injury, didn't he? Uh, and but he and he went to Everton after that for two million, which in those days was quite a lot of money. Yeah. But as, as you say, he he was really never heard of again. Yeah, I mean the st- the story is obviously because I knew him was he he did I think he did his Achilles. Yeah. He was he was out for the year uh, ninety six ninety seven. Um, at the start of ninety seven, um, Harry wanted a left back. Tellingly, Slaven Bilic was at Everton. So we go for Unsworth, and I'm led to believe Billich has a word with Howard Kendall and says, if you can get Williamson, he's a fantastic player. Because mm-hmm. uh, obviously Danny had been uh, with Billich uh, in the first team. And he hadn't played for a year, though, for West Ham. And we had Frank Lampard Jr., obviously, that Harry, um, you know, whether- careful. Yeah, you know, but the thing is, is, is was was Danny sacrificed because he was fit? But was Danny sacrificed because they knew they had Frank yeah. coming through? Possibly, who knows? And you were right on Matthew Rush. He played yes, I know. 33 <laughs> games in the Premier League, scored three goals. Um, says he played in Division One. Yeah, he did actually before yeah, he we got did. promoted. Yeah, yeah. Ten, 10 games and two goals there as well. Yeah. So yeah, you were right. Um, I did, you, you noticed that that's a phrase often used on the podcast, Ian. Um, what you were right. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Note to self: never argue with yes. with Nigel about West Ham stats anymore. <laughs> and who would you have liked to have seen live? Oh. Who would I like to have seen? Who I, I, t- I did see him live once, um, but uh, George Best. Really? Um, what, what, playing? Yes. Um, my mum had a boyfriend that was a Crystal Palace fan, and he took me to see Fulham play Crystal Palace. And George Best and Rodney Marsh playing mm. for Fulham. And I, I, I love uh, George Best. Um, outstanding player so I'm, I, it's one thing I love the fact that I could say I saw George Best play yeah, yeah. I was seven years of age you know what do I remember the game um, Palace won one nil, but I think George Best broke Ian Evans leg but somehow I think or Rodney Marsh broke Ian Evans leg and George Best got sent off it was something like that Rod mm. Marsh and Best did something and one of them got sent off in the game Um it stuck in my mind See, even back then but you, for West Ham sorry Kevin Keegan I'd love to have seen Kevin Keegan team up with Trevor Brooking yeah there was a there was a moment when I thought Kevin Keegan might come to us as manager oh um, I can't remember when that was but that that would have that would have been because he would have actually fitted quite well fun. with us wouldn't it it would have been yeah. fun it would have ended in tears but it would have been fun um, do I you, was next to the tunnel sorry when no, Keegan uh, at the last game with Wembley so I was next to the tunnel for that last game 
and Keegan walks round in front of us. And from behind me, two big northern chaps come running down, jump up on the fence, an absolute slaughter him. And I remember thinking, blimey, that's a bit harsh. Keegan was my, one of my heroes as a kid. Mm. And I thought, blimey, that's a bit harsh, isn't it? Absolutely gave him abuse. Hang your head in shame, call yourself English, blah, blah. When my wife picked me up at the train station after the game, she tells me Keegan's resigned. I watched the game back and you can see him as he walks down. He looks, he looks to his left and he's looked at those blokes. And there's a part of me thinks they were the ones that got him to resign. It's a, it can be a cruel game, can't it? Because people's emotions, I mean, in a way, sometimes understandably just go over the top. But um, I, I interviewed him um, oh, about 18 months ago when his autobiography mm. came out. Oh, yeah, and yeah. I, I don't get nervous generally before an interview but like you he was one of my heroes as a teenager and um i i was quite nervous about it because I, I was so keen that it went well and he was fantastic immediately put me at my ease and we did the most well i thought it was one of the best interviews i've done because he was he was just so yeah. o- so open and honest um and and sometimes you you see footballers or football managers being interviewed and you, you look at the interview and you think, you're not doing your job. If, if you were a political interviewer, you wouldn't be saying, so, great game, wasn't it, Kevin? I mean, th- th- there's no sort of... They don't even seek to get insight. All they're seeking to do is to be best mates with the manager or the player, as far as I can see. As far as I can see. Yeah, it's... As a, as a kid, I always wanted to be a journalist, football journalist. Um, the problem with that is you have to go to school and get educated. <laughs> And that's true. I, 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 at school, 15, you know, you have to go see the careers officer. What do you want to be? Mm. I want to be a football journalist. And he, he went, think again. That's exactly what he said to me, think again. The first article I had published was for uh, a website called Give Me Football by the PFA. And I won that gig in a competition. They were only picking four people. I don't know how many entered, but they chose me. And my article was about why West Ham is a soap opera. And this is in 2011. Mm. <laughs> and and it really was. <laughs> yeah, it was. But it, it, that's, you know, and for me, again, when you say about how I'm now on the podcast, I ask questions. I qu- everything needs to be questioned because I don't see that happen. Not especially football journalists for me now want are so concerned about their access to players and managers that they will not get to the grip of it. I don't know who, actually, just quickly, I'll do this. So one of the first times I engaged with you, we had a little spat. Mm. And What was it about? I can't remember. I I remember You interviewed David Gold on LBC. That was it. Now, that night... I was at an anti-move meeting at the, in the supporters club at West Ham. And then we hear that David Gold's done an interview and I got to listen to back to it. And what happened was, is that David Gold made a comment and David Gold's comment was, and it was all to do with Orient complaining that we're going to nick their supporters. And David Gold's rebuff was, well, you know, you choose your football club and you stick with it. You don't change. 
I think I upset you when I pointed out <laughs> that sitting opposite David Gold was a man that came to support Man United no, until was he was it. 10 years old. I was 10 years old. Oh, no, no, no. But what, <laughs> what you missed the point there when you come back and had a go at me was that... <laughs> Oh, yes, he was 10 years old, but actually it proved his theory wrong. It, it wasn't about me outing you as a Man United fan up until you're 10. You <laughs> and know, you've just done it again. Thanks well, a lot, no, mate. But my aim's <laughs> I'd been to convert people to be West Ham fans, even in 30-year-olds, if, if they haven't got a football club. You know, come and support West Ham. You won't regret it, well, mm. you will. But, you know, you'll have fun doing it, though. Now, who wants to watch winning football? It's boring. But you proved David got. No, my main aim was to prove David got wrong, mm. and you did that for me. But obviously, I upset you. <laughs> <laughs> and, and here we are today. And here we are today. <laughs> yeah, you know who'd have thought it? Dear, oh dear, I wouldn't have. To be fair, but, uh, no, I don't, I don't think I would have. But uh, no, well, it, it's th this is the great joy of podcasts, isn't it? In that, I mean, we have met, but on what? for maybe three, four, five occasions. But because I listen to you every week, I kind of think I know you. And, um, I mean, the Sean, obviously I've met him probably about the same amount of times as I've met you. The others I haven't ever met, I don't think. No. Um, but it, it just becomes... It's like listening to some mates down the pub on a Sunday evening chewing over the week's events to do with West Ham. And that that is a really powerful thing, I think. And, yes, it's frustrating sometimes. And there's often... I mean, I, I've been on the podcast a few times um, as well, but obviously I can't do that anymore because I'm on the radio when you record it, although I think I am going to come on in April once. I've been told you are, yes. Yeah, so... Um, <laughs> you mean told or warned? No, I've been told. Because uh, uh, I, I did uh, uh, say to the person that told me, uh, don't you think you should have asked us as well? Because apparently you asked him and he said yes. No, which... well, I didn't actually ask him. That's oh, not right. quite right. I just said, by the way, if you're a man down on these two dates, I could oh, step right. in. Okay, not the story that I've got. And oh, me really? being me, naturally, oh, well, I, 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 I was begging to come on, was I? Yes, naturally, <laughs> me being me, naturally, because I disagree with everything he does, turned around and questioned, well, isn't it polite? I was brought up to be polite. Wasn't it polite for you to ask us? And he was like... Now, he didn't know I was coming on here then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so we'd already arranged this. And he was like, well, don't you like him? I went, no, that's got nothing to do with it. Uh, so that's the argumentative Nigel comes. Sometimes it's there. It just comes rushing. I can't help it. It just comes out in me. And um, Oh, well, I'm not uh, coming on now. No. Oh. <laughs> And we have so much fun together. <laughs> oh, dear. Well, it's been absolutely brilliant. We've gone over two hours now, um, which is actually quite a short podcast compared to more than just a podcast sometimes. But uh, um, it's been absolutely brilliant. I think even the non-West Ham fans who've been listening will have found it absolutely riveting. Maybe not all the West Ham bits, but the rest of it, well, I think it's been Good awesome. or bad. So thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me. I couldn't afford to see a psychoanalyst, so <laughs> <laughs> I thought I'd use this. Oh, actually, I've got a mate who's just started up a podcast called State of Mind, so I think I'm oh. going to I think I'm going to get him to invite you. Yeah, on he would have did some State of Mind. I need to have a field day. <laughs> Nigel, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thanks a lot, Especially and uh, do join us again uh, next time on Ian Dale All Talk. Goodbye. 
You've been listening to a Global Original Podcast. If you've enjoyed it, please do leave a review wherever you get your podcasts from, as it helps other people to find us. I host five other podcasts, which I hope you might like to try out too. For the Many with Jackie Smith, The Prime Ministers, The Iandale Book Club, Cross Question and Iandale The Whole Show. And of course, you can listen to my LBC show live from 7 to 10 p.m. Monday to Thursday on FM in London, on digital radio across the UK or all over the world on Global Player or your smart speaker. See you next time. Goodbye. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.